Exodus chapter 4. This will be a sermon a little bit unusual. I don't usually uh, do sermons that are so theologically driven that they are skipping through several texts. But I think the necessity of a challenge in front of us uh, requires us to synthesize multiple texts and bring them together to understand what the Lord is doing. When you look in Exodus chapter 4, you'll see that it says in verse 21 that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so the question has multiple different challenges to it. Um, If the Lord is responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart, which you'll see as we read through several of these texts, that that it's sin for Pharaoh to have a hard heart. Well, then we have the tension of God causing someone to have a hard heart that leads them to being sinful. And it sounds very much like God is the author of sin. That God is the one that's responsible for Pharaoh's sin. So the question I I think we can ask on several different levels is, who is responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart? What does it actually mean to have a hard heart? Why is that heart hard? And maybe you could ultimately ask the question of how that actually works together. Like, what is God actually doing in that hardening? So let's, let's just start on basic definitions after we read this text together. Look with me down in chapter 4. I'll read from verse 21 down through verse 23. There's kind of a little subunit there that I think helps us capture what's going on. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, as you you look through Exodus chapter 4 through chapter 14, you will see that repeatedly that phrase of hardening is used. For instance, in chapter 8, verse 15, if you turn there with me, After the plague of the frogs, where Moses speaks to Pharaoh, verse 13, the Lord does according to the word of Moses, and the frogs die, verse uh, 14 of chapter 8 now. They gather them together in heaps, and the land stink. But when Pharaoh saw that there is respite, he hardened his heart. So in chapter 4, who hardens Pharaoh's heart? The Lord does. In chapter 8, who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardens his heart. And if you want to add a little more tension to the mix, look down at verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Well, there, the hardening is passive. Neither the Lord nor Pharaoh is the direct subject that does the hardening. It's that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So in about 18 different places in these 10 chapters, Pharaoh's heart gets hardened either by Pharaoh, by the Lord, or maybe you could say the heart hardens itself. And so we're left with the uh, theological tension of who's hardening, what does hardening mean, why is God doing it, and, and what maybe we could say gives God the right to do it. So when we consider the definition of hardening, there's three different words used for these 18 occurrences. One term refers to the idea of someone who's difficult or hard 
That is, there's almost a sense of, of unkind meanness or spitefulness. It's like in chapter 13, where Pharaoh hardened his heart. After all of the nine plagues, it becomes so certain that what God says is going to happen through Moses is going to happen. And God tells him, hey, your firstborn son's going to die. Moses digs his heels in anyway. And these are signs that God is, is moving Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's own stubbornness is at place here. It leads to a type of cruelty in chapter 7 in verse 3, where Pharaoh hardens his heart and, and resists uh, kindness. He won't even let Moses go with the kids. But there's a second term that has the idea of strengthening something that's already um, present. So it's almost as though Pharaoh's heart was already inclined against Israel, hated them, and was hard. And God, uh, through this hardening, strengthens and energizes what he already wanted to do. So that, for instance, uh, in chapter 421, this is the term that's used there. God is reinforcing a hard heart to be harder. And finally, there's another term that speaks to weight or heaviness. It's actually where we get the word glory from, kaved in Hebrew. And this speaks to his heart becoming dull or dense or, or uh, impenetrable. So like Isaiah uses this in chapter 6, where God sends Isaiah out to go and do prophetic ministry. And he says the people will have ears that are heavy and dull and they won't hear you. It's that same word that, that the truth won't penetrate the ears of the uh, people that Isaiah is ministering to, just like Pharaoh's heart becomes impenetrably hard and dull. Uh, one scholar says it's almost as though he becomes dumb and stupid. Like he knows, he knows how clear God's hand is against them, and even still he's just unwilling to come to grips with the truth of the matter. So that as his leaders are saying, hey, we should let Israel go. The whole nation's ruined. He still won't do it, even despite the plain facts of the matter in front of him. So if this is what hardening happens, and it leads, especially in chapter 8, it's very clear, it leads to sin. As Pharaoh's hardening his heart isn't just moral ambiguity. It's not just someone who's um, unaware and therefore a little less guilty. This is someone who's fully aware and is sinning in the doing of this. So how are we to take this? Again, going back to chapter 421, this is the first time it's mentioned, and I think it's significant. The Lord is said to be the one that does this. Now, I, I do not want to get too technical. One of the reasons um, that pastors are, are called to be pastors is because they have the ability to be technical, but hopefully they can deliver something that you understand. Having said that, the Hebrew term here has the idea of causing. So you could read it this way. That in verse 21, that he is going to cause, I will cause his heart to be hardened. In fact, it's the idea of not only cause, but also repetition. That is, I will repeatedly cause his heart to be hardened. So here the Lord is telling Moses exactly what he's going to do. And the linguistics tell us that this is a cause, it's a causal idea with repetition in it. So that God is going to strengthen and harden Pharaoh's heart on a repeated basis. I, I think this is clear. If you look down in chapter 5, verse 22 with me. Moses prioritizes God causing trouble through Pharaoh. 
So if you remember last week when we look at kind of the despair that Moses has in front of God where he's saying, God, why have you done this to Israel? You're, you sent me to release them and cause freedom and actually what's happened is more oppression and sorrow for your people. Verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Okay, now notice what he does. God, you've done evil. And he, he talks for a, a little bit more, and then he says, because Pharaoh has done evil. So who's the primary cause of this? Remember, evil doesn't mean a moral um, wickedness here. It means something like you've caused trouble to come on us. Okay, so who's really responsible for this trouble? Moses identifies God as the primary. You've caused trouble by having Pharaoh cause us trouble. Okay, so linguistics in, in these verses indicate that God is the cause. Moses' prayer seems to give priority to God as the primary cause. But then if you go back to chapter 8, we were just there, but I, I know we're going to be bouncing around a little bit just to, to get a survey of these texts. Go back to chapter 8, verse 19. And this occurs multiple different times. But you'll notice there's a sense of like fulfillment language. Verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. The Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, if you were to continue reading like chapter 9, verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Chapter 9, verse 35, um, Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So, and again, you, and again, you have this idea of prophetic fulfillment. That is, not only is God the cause, but this is precisely as God has planned. Or maybe if we're going to use a, a more theological word, as God had decreed. That is, God had laid out exactly how Pharaoh would respond in his divine plan. And then through hardening, he has caused Pharaoh to respond with a dull heart, a, a strengthened heart to be strong in its rebellion. And God says, this has happened just as I have said, repeatedly. So that no one has any question that the hardening that happens is not merely God saying, well, I saw that he would be hard hearted. I saw that he would be difficult to deal with. I saw that he would be a jerk. It's not God merely prophesying about the future through Moses. It's that God is actually taking responsibility for how his plan is unfolding. So I think we could summarize or synthesize all of these scripture passages this way. God has decreed that Pharaoh would have a hard heart. Pharaoh freely and willfully, make it say sinfully, hardened his heart. And just to make that clear, look with me in chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. So if you're wondering about who is responsible for the sin here, Scripture, I think, makes it abundantly clear. It's not the Lord. If you look, I think it, it, it's interesting 
the way that God's kindness in withdrawing the plagues to Egypt, like his kindness to Egypt and to Pharaoh with drawing the plagues, leads to Moses, or excuse me, to Pharaoh being hard-hearted. Verse 33, Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, stretched out his hand to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So notice, Scripture is very clear here. Pharaoh sees that God's plagues had stopped, and immediately it emboldens him to have a hard heart against God and God's people. And the Bible says, and he did what in doing this? This was sin for him to do this. So Pharaoh sins against God by doing this. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Okay, so let me repeat again. When we ask the question, who is responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart? I think we have to say God and Pharaoh were both actively involved. God is the primary cause, has decreed it. Pharaoh, in a secondary sense, freely chose sin. Okay, let me say that again. God actively decreed it. And he let Pharaoh, in his freedom, choose sin. So if you're going to ask who, I think the answer is both, but in unequal measures. That is, God hardened through his decree, Pharaoh freely sinned. Hopefully you're all tracking with me. Some of you right now are saying, man, I don't really understand. Let me see if we can keep working through this and, and get clarity here. Before we get clarity on how God does this, which I think will come at the end on our last question, I'm going to suggest to you again, God is gloriously in control of the free acts of all people. God is gloriously in control of the free acts of all people. I've already suggested to you that God is in control of Pharaoh's hard heart, and Pharaoh has freedom. I think if we're synthesizing this, then we're going to say God is gloriously in control of all of the free acts of all people. Okay, so how do we get God's glorious control? Well, we're going to go through several passages together, so get your, get your fingers warmed up. Uh, Exodus 9.16. I think this is kind of the watershed verse on this text, or on this thought. Why is God doing this with Pharaoh? Well, if you look in verse 16, for this very purpose I have raised you up, he says to Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed through all the earth. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? In fact, why is Pharaoh even alive? I have raised you up for this very purpose that my power might be shown through you so that my glory will spread through the whole earth. Why is Pharaoh right here, right now, in this moment, expressing rebellion to God? Well, sometimes I, I think, this dumb joke I heard about, what do you get if you play a country song backwards? Get your house back, your car back, your wife back. I feel like sometimes with the text, if we do that, we, we actually see the cause here. Let's imagine that we rewind all the plagues and we get rid of all of them. God's display 
of covenantal love and affection for his people. His concern for their groaning and their burdens is nowhere expressed without the plagues, without the rescue, without the bondage being relieved by the redemption that Moses leads them by God's grace to walk through. We don't see this powerful working of God to bring the heavens and the bugs and the frogs and the the ocean and the Nile, all of it to his obedience. We don't see that, that God is sovereign over the human heart of not just Pharaoh, but his leaders and the nation as he turns Egypt to hate Israel, according to Psalm 105, 25. I've caused them to hate you. So God is doing this, that his name might be proclaimed. And, and even just the sweetness of this, consider this thought. Do you remember this name, Rahab? Here's Rahab, <clears throat> 40 years after this incident, and she's just a nobody. I mean, she's worse than a nobody in some ways. Her profession is wicked. Right? She is, she's a prostitute in a random city in Canaan. And because of God preaching his glory through these plagues, she trusts in the God of Israel. And her and her family are saved and redeemed by God's grace. And she becomes an ancestor of King David and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Why? Well, that doesn't ever happen if we country song this thing backwards. Right, because God never preached. And if Pharaoh had, the first time Moses had come to him and said, hey, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, you know what, yeah, get rid of these bums. We're sick of them. Get them out. We lose the most powerful sermon God ever preaches in the nation of Israel's existence. And up until the time of Christ, there has never been a greater act of rescue ever. And God's preaching. It's more than that. It's that, like chapter 10, verse 1, this becomes a memorial and a nationalizing motif for Israel to recognize not only God's power, but their national identity. Chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son, and of your grandson, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. God is not just preaching his name. He is establishing this monument for all of Israel's history, whereby they can point back to this moment of redemption and say, look at what God has done for us. In analogy, we do this with Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever owned a cross necklace. But we have this symbol of divine affection and loyalty and redemption when we look at a cross. And it becomes this, this significant means by which we preach the character of God to his people. How do you know God loves you? Because you wouldn't love you if you saw yourself the way God sees you. 
And yet he sent his son to die for you, to redeem you, because he loves the sinners he redeems. And how do you know he loves them so much? Because Jesus died to rescue us from sin. And throughout all of Israel's history, the rescue from Egypt was the way in which they could see the crystallization of God's power over the pagan nations, over the pagan nations' hearts, and over all of creative elements, whether it's the the impersonal stuff of storms, whether it's their livestock, or whether it's the, the pests like locusts and flies. God is king over all of that, rescued all of you from Egypt through these means. Throughout all the years, this is to be preached. It's more than that, though. God is declaring his glory not only over um, the, the bondage and the oppression, but also over false deities. Look in chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, he's talking about the Passover night to come, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and the beasts, and on all the, you guys read that? All the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Now what is he saying there? Well, Pharaoh himself was supposedly a divine being. That is, that is, he he expressed for the people the will of God and the judgments of God for Egypt. But more than that, they worshiped in their pantheon almost all of these elements. I think the, like the frog god is a god of fertility, which ironically, as these frogs go crazy and cover the land because of their fertility, they wreck everything. The Nile, this place of, of life-giving, um, agricultural strength for Egypt, turns into a river of blood, death. God is showing your, your deities, Hopi that is represented in these things, and Ra, who's represented, I think, as the sun god, when he makes the whole world go dark, so dark you could feel it, Scripture says. God is again and again trouncing the powers of Egypt, showing their absolute impotence and weakness in the face of his divine power. So he's preaching. He's preaching his glory through the whole earth. He's preaching to Israel for all of its future generations that he's a God of covenantal love, of incredible power, and of personal protection for his people. He preaches to Israel and to Egypt and to all the world that Egyptian as a sup- that the Egypt as a superpower, Pharaoh as a quasi-divine being, and all of the pantheon in Egypt is a pretense and a false power compared to God. Chapter 14, verse 4, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 14, verse 17 and 18, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. God is not merely defeating the pantheon of Egypt. He is defeating Pharaoh and the armies. The superpower is powerless in front of God. You think about the absolute just insanity 
of Pharaoh. I want you to imagine that after 10 plagues in which this God named Yahweh has wrecked your nation, has shown his dislike for anyone who opposes his people, parts the sea so that the water is piled up on either side and there's dry land in the middle. And you're going to walk there between these two walls of water. Why would you risk your life that way, knowing this God doesn't like people who don't like his people? Like, you have to be just absolutely crazy to risk your life fighting against this God. Well, why is God hardening his hearts? Precisely so that he gets glory over Pharaoh, over his armies, over the national power of Egypt, over their false gods, over all of nature, over life and death itself, God is declaring, I am sovereign. But I think we might miss it if you forget that in the middle of this, he is declaring a little quieter, I am also sovereign over the human heart. None of this happens if he does not harden Pharaoh. None of this happens if he doesn't strengthen this man in his rebellion to do wrong. None of it happens. God is sovereign not just over the superpowers, but over every person's heart. So I will repeat to you again. God is gloriously in control. By this I mean he is displaying his glory by a sovereign management and providence over all of the acts of all people of all ages. God is going to get glory from all of us. So how does he harden Pharaoh's heart? And I think here's the real, the real grind that we have, right? Like, God is holy. James 1.13 says he cannot be tempted and he doesn't tempt anyone. So how is God doing this and not getting his hands dirty? Like, how, how does God do this in such a way he doesn't violate his own holy ethic? So if you're with me in Romans chapter 9, The Apostle Paul is wrestling with the same tension. And I don't mean to say that he is unsure. I mean that he is in front of us unpacking this challenge. So if God is responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart, you might agree with verse 19 of Romans chapter 9. Where he says, "Who or excuse me, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I want to back up and take a running stab at that verse. If we go back to verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We need to come back and meditate on that in a moment. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. We've read that. That's Exodus chapter 9. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. And you will say then, 
why, do we, why does he still find fault then? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Now, I just, I just want to pause because this needs to be said. This is one of those things like, and who do you think you are? Questions. Okay, so he's wrestling through a theological tension. And this can happen in apologetics where you're trying to prove that God is real and exists and is good. And, and if you're not careful, you are sounding as though we have a right to evaluate and judge God. We don't. God is the judge. We are not. And so while God is rational and he calls us to use our rational faculties to understand him, he never puts us in the place of judgment over him. All right, so, so this is a little bit like a fan that's courtside who's yelling at the ref to call a foul. And the ref looks over him and says, hey, if you want to go through the training and do all this stuff, fine, you can do it. But right now I'm the ref, so either I'm going to kick you out or you're going to be quiet. Who are you? bystander fan who doesn't see with honest eyes this game? I'm the ref. But more so than this is as qualitative. Who are you, a mere man, to sit in judgment on God Almighty? And the answer is, you dare not. But that doesn't mean that God is not rational and that he's not going to help us to understand his grace and kindness. It does mean you should be careful when wrestling through theological concepts, that you don't project any judgment against God. God defines what is right and just. If you think something is not just and right, it's because you are wrong and God is right. I mean, the definition of fairness, I would argue, derives itself from a God who's absolutely just. And so if you're going to take your sense of justice and foist it upon God and say, hey, you don't line up to my sense of justice, he'll look back at you and say, it's because your sense is wrong. Having said that, God is helping us understand how he moves in men like Pharaoh without, without corrupting his holy hands. Look again, verse 20, but you, who are you, O man? Again, the point is, you're just mere man. To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? But if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And he continues on, but I think, I think we can pause there. I want you just to notice a few observations. Um, just as an aside, God is delighted to show his wrath. And God is not embarrassed about the fact that he is a just God. He is not embarrassed or ashamed that for all eternity, hell will be filled with fallen angels and people who've rejected the Savior. God is not somehow apologetic about that. You know, there's sometimes if you were to show up at our house unannounced, that you might see a little bit of mess, and we're kind of like, don't look over there, close that door real quick, kids. We're, we're, we're embarrassed about some of the stuff in our life that's not as presentable as we'd want it to be. 
I just would challenge you Christians that you know how, how sweet the cross is because in the cross, God's holiness is declared and vindicated. When you remove God's wrath, you impeach his holiness. You deny his integrity to defend his holiness. And you do a disservice to the real fear of the Lord that should invade places where God's people dwell. Right? God is holy. We should not be casual or cavalier with sin. And nor should we be so negligent as to strip away fear of his divine justice from the sinner. I want you to look at verse 22 again. What if God desiring to show his wrath? God desires to show his wrath, right? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I just want to pause there. From this lump of clay, he makes two vessels, right? You with me? This one deserves wrath. Notice that it doesn't get wrath right away. God instead endures with patience. At what point did this vessel deserve wrath? Well, let's see if we can answer that question by looking at the other vessel. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Now, what type of person gets mercy? Do sinless people get mercy? Who gets mercy? Condemned people who deserve God's judgment. So I would like to suggest to you that from this lump of clay, there is no vessel who doesn't deserve God's wrath. Both deserve wrath because the lump of clay from the very beginning in its lumpiness deserved wrath. And that while God parts two separate people, let's say, from this lump of clay, each one comes out fully deserving God's wrath. That is, the one who's destined for eternal destruction receives grace in the sense of enduring patience by God, not to give them the judgment they deserve until that time in which God gives it. But from the moment of its creation, or maybe I could say in this sense, procreation, from the moment of your conception, you are a lump of clay that deserves God's wrath. And we go to the vessels of mercy, they likewise, from the moment of their conception, deserve God's wrath. Now, this then is the foundation for the statement. I, I mentioned we need to go back and consider it. I want you to go back to verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? No, by no means. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So, so here's the point. If we, have, if we have every clay lump deserving wrath, what distinguishes one from the other? It's his mercy. Because everyone deserves his judgments. God's mercy is granted to some, and his point then in verse 15 is that God has the right to not give mercy. By definition, mercy is not deserved. So, if you will, if there's a string of 10 people in front of God, all of them from birth onward deserve judgment. On none of those 10 is God somehow unrighteous by not giving mercy. None of them deserve it by rule and definition of what mercy is. And so when God says, I will give to number eight mercy, 
number one through seven, and nine and ten can't go like, oh, you're unrighteous, God. Because that is to bind his mercy and not call it mercy, but deserts or what is deserved. And that is not mercy at all or grace. And that, that's why when he says this, and he's quoting from Exodus 33. So in Exodus 33, 19, this is where Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face or you'll die. That's how glorious I am. But I will tell you and proclaim to you my name. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now God is declaring sovereign mercy. That is, he is the one who dispenses it however he will. You know, all of this is leading us back to Pharaoh's hard heart. I just want you to know you're getting caught up in the sovereign mercy, and you should be. It's glorious. So as we consider then Pharaoh, what did Pharaoh have a right to from God? Judgment. That's what he deserved. Right? He had a right to no grace. He had a right to no mercy. He had a right to absolutely zero kindness from God. But he deserves unmitigated, undiluted wrath forever, like every one of us does. So then it was only by God's patience that Pharaoh lived and experienced the wonders of God's creation, was appointed as king of Egypt, and was able to interact with God himself through Moses. It was only by God's sovereign mercy that he met the very prophet of God and talked to him. And it was in that same mercy God held back the plagues, plague after plague after plague, to only a few days. It was only by God's mercy that he was able to associate with God's people in such a way that were he to have turned, he would have had the gospel in as much as it was formulated during the time of Moses accessible to him. And yet, he hardened his heart. So what are we to do this with Pharaoh? What exactly is God suggesting for us is happening in these moments? Well, if Pharaoh is a vessel like you and me, that from the moment of birth onward until God redeems us, we deserve his wrath, then when God pulled back any hope of grace and mercy for him, God didn't do anything unrighteous. But how exactly does that harden him? Well, let me just suggest a, a few things. First, you and I are bad people innately. I, I know the world likes to talk about how good we are, or maybe even like American exceptionalism, like there's something better in the water here than anywhere else in the world. But these things are just fantasies we like to tell ourselves that we're actually not that bad. But Scripture again and again says none of us is good. None of us has a good heart. None of us will seek after God or pursue goodness on our own. No one is good. Scripture says so frequently, and you don't need it to be uh, continually repeated to you. So I want you to recognize that one of God's graces and mercies, and I call it a grace and mercy because he can withdraw it, is a restraint against sin. That is, you and I have many common graces, and we also have some special graces. Some of the common graces that I have are things like a family, where if I were to treat my kids badly, I would have a very gracious conversation from my wife to me, saying, what are you doing? Why would you say those unkind words to our kids? And in so doing, she's a, a, a 
grace God has given me that helps my sin not be so sinful. It helps my sinful heart to not express itself in such ugly ways. But we have other gracious things in our society, like police officers and like video cameras now that are everywhere. And, and they help the world suppress his ugliness. And God gives many graces like this. Parents, teachers, a society that has rules of etiquette, etiquette and right and wrong for which you'll feel shame. I mean, I, I don't like a lot about cancel culture, but frankly, its enforcement power is much more effective than our laws, especially in this state. Right? Like, there's ways in which, again, I'm not a fan of cancel culture, but it presses people to keep them from doing things that society says it shouldn't do. These are graces. Now, I want you to imagine that you strip all of those graces away. No law, no one will ever find out what you do. You can do whatever you want. You have absolute freedom. There will be zero consequences. No one will ever know. God will never give you any punishment for it. Now go and live how you like. Imagine that magic wand being waved over the United States. What would happen? That's terrifying, isn't it? And I think this is an example of what God had done to Pharaoh. That God moved away restraining graces or mercies. Now, God has sovereignty over his mercy. So for him to take away restraint from Pharaoh, to take away the pressure on him to do right, and you can even see him act boldly in the face of his counselor saying, please let Israel go. The nation is ruined. And he does what? I don't care. He is free from any pressure by his counselors. He is just doing what he wants to do. In fact, you might have heard it said that absolute power, that's because people in absolute power are freed from a lot of the common graces that restrain us. No law is going to be enforced on them because they'll just kill the law enforcement officer. They write the laws. They don't care what anyone else thinks about them. So they can do X, Y, or Z. And it just doesn't matter. And you see what happens to the human heart that is already corrupted when it gets the freedom to express it. So you ask, how exactly did God harden Pharaoh's heart without actually getting his hands dirty in sin? And here's the answer. God pulled back his mercy on a vessel that was already destined for damnation and let him run full speed ahead so that, that we could say Pharaoh's heart was self-hardened because God took back the restraint that keeps most of us from being as ugly and wicked as we would be. And thereby, God securely and sovereignly decreed that Pharaoh would have a hard heart. So let me just suggest to you again that God is gloriously in control of the free acts of men. Who is responsible for the sin that Pharaoh did? Pharaoh. Who is in control of Egypt and Israel and Pharaoh's heart? God was. But God is in no way accountable or responsible for the sin and the wickedness of Pharaoh. Instead, he used him so that Pharaoh perfectly followed God's decree plan while expressing his creaturely freedom to sin and rebel against God Almighty. 
This is what is going on in Exodus chapter 4 through verse 14. And all of this leads us to this thought. I think most sermons end with good application, or at least somewhere in there should have good application. So, so like, let's walk through a couple. First, God is glorious. Like, this is our God who says, I will declare to you who I am. And in Exodus, he unfolds and exegetes himself and shows us who he is. And he's a God who's not only in control of locusts, he's in control of the heart. So that when Proverbs 21, 1 says that the Lord is in control of the king's heart, he turns it as rivers of water wherever he desires, we don't have to wonder what that means. We've seen it displayed in the heart of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's not merely a man. He represents the most powerful man that we might hear both in the proverb and in Exodus, that God is sovereignly in control of all human hearts. So not only do we walk away with adoration, that God is in control, that this is who our God is, but we should walk away with confidence and rest. You have never met a coworker who is a free agent outside of God's decrees. Instead, what you've always met and interacted with is agents who act freely within God's decree, which means your coworker who's a jerk is still exactly like Pharaoh under God's perfect control. And this should give you rest. Some of you have parents that you think are unreasonable. Some of you have children who think you're unreasonable. God is in control of hearts. Right? He's, he is sovereignly in control. Some of you, next November, might be very, very disappointed. You might feel a terrible weight of anxiety on Wednesday morning after the elections happen, and your hope for president doesn't get elected. And if it doesn't happen in 2024, don't worry. Just as long as you live long enough, it's probably going to happen. Who is in control? Our God is in control of the president's heart. And he turns it wherever he wants. And sometimes I wonder if our leaders aren't a sign of divine disapproval on our nation and judgment. But it doesn't mean that we lapse into a pagan idea that somehow God is stepped back and is not in control. Rather, we say that God is gloriously in control of the free acts of men, and they're going to be accountable for those free acts. And so we plead that the God who's in control of hearts would save and redeem people, and that they might see his glory like Rahab did and be saved. I think there's also just a, a crushing sense of gratitude that should fill your heart. God owed you nothing, and he still owes you nothing. And so let me just suggest that for two groups of people in here, this is significant. There might be a group of people that are unsure if they are saved and redeemed by grace. They might currently be vessels, and they don't know vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy, which one they are. God owes you nothing, no guarantees of salvation. And if you put, on, put off salvation, you have no guarantee that God's mercy will ever knock on your door again. 
You have no hope that in 40 years on your deathbed, you'll be able to like turn to Jesus in this graveside type of moment and get saved at the last minute before they bury you. You have no hope of that from Scripture. And God owes you nothing. But he offers you mercy because he loves, through the Savior, all sinners who come to him in faith. So trust in the Savior. Do not be Pharaoh. Do not be like this man who heard of God, saw God's power, experienced God's judgment, and still pressed in until the day he died in his wickedness and sin. But of all the tragedies of Egypt, how does Pharaoh not get saved? He stared the power of God in its face and still denied the person of God. God is a grace of mercy. God is a God of grace and mercy. And today, he is offering to all who hear the message of his son, eternal life. He is offering you mercy. He is offering you forgiveness. Please don't fail to accept him. I'd say more than that as well, Christian. You've probably had some experience in which probably driving on the roads of Bakersfield, your life flashed in front of your eyes. You're about ready to go and someone blows through a red light at 70 miles an hour on Gosford or something like that. And you feel that sense of like dodging a bullet. Like that sense of like I could have died. Tell me that when you hear Romans and you see God making from the lump of clay the two lumps, both deserving divine damnation. And God says, because he wants to display his mercy and grace, he's saved you. That that doesn't cause you gratitude. Why did he choose to save you? Because he's a loving God? Not because you're lovable? Not because you're redeemable? Not because you started down a path? Not because your parents were awesome? He saved you because he's merciful. You deserved nothing, have done nothing, and will never do anything to warrant or call God to save you, ever. We are never saved by works. We're saved by mercy alone. And not one of us deserves the love of God. And Pharaoh reminds us that could have been us. God had every right to let me go to be the hard-hearted Pharaoh. Except I would have been a hard-hearted poor boy from Wisconsin. I wouldn't even have been a Pharaoh. Right, like, I, I could be Pharaoh. God was righteous with Pharaoh, and that could be me. But God has saved me. And he used, like, my brothers who were jerks to point out that I wasn't saved because they wouldn't let me sing the Christian songs. I don't know how God has saved you, but to not have that sense of just absolute spine-chilling relief as you realized you have been rescued from the wrath of God and it had nothing to do with you and everything to do with the God of mercy is just absolutely breathtaking for the believer. And that's the glory of God too. Right? That, 
that he would save us. And we don't know why, except to display his wrath, he would not save some. Doesn't make us glory in us, but says, God, thank you that I can be a trophy of your grace. Please display your glory through me. Please use me to show people how merciful you are. Because if you can save some bozo like me, then you can certainly tell others that you can save them too. God, use me for your glory. Thank you for saving me. Isn't it the heart of every Christian? How do you see the hardness of Pharaoh and not say, Lord, thank you for not helping me to be hard, but helping me to be soft? Thank you for saving me. And then turning to your kids as the subject of your prayers and saying, God, give them soft hearts. Use the grace of our home, the grace of our church, the grace of our community to save my children. Lord, please be merciful. Because God in his mercy is kind to those who call on him. He listens to the prayers of his people. And he loves to save sinners. This is who our God is as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for forcing us to wrestle with things that are well beyond our comprehension. Lord, studying scripture humbles all of us. Because while this is a document with limited numbers of words, it declares to us that there is an infinite God who is unlimited. And were we to spend all of eternity researching how you have worked to decree to harden Pharaoh and still allow him to be a free agent, we would not have enough words to understand and express how incredible you are, how sweet your mercy, and how sovereign your compelling control is over this world, while at the same time allowing sinners to be agents who are free. Lord, we trust you. There's an aspect of faith by which we ask that you to strengthen our hearts to embrace you as you declare yourself to be. You are a God of mercy and grace, but you are also a God who will not pardon those who are guilty who do not repent. You're a God who has wrath because you're holy and you vindicate your holiness by judging sinners. And so you righteously judged Pharaoh by allowing him to pursue his sin. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on this church, that you would guard us, that we would have soft hearts that would turn from sin. Lord, I pray for those that are in here and I ask that you might save them if they do not know Jesus Christ. That like Pharaoh and his armies who stood against you, they currently stand. But Lord, unlike Pharaoh and his armies, I ask that you might be merciful to them, that you would not allow them to remain hard-hearted. Lord, I pray that even as we conclude this service today, that your people's hearts would echo with thanksgiving and joy and gratitude for a salvation that has come to them despite their deserving judgment. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this rest. We know you are in control. You're not merely in control of the stars and the movements of this earth. You are in control of the movements of the people in our homes, in our workplaces, and within our church. You govern the hearts that govern us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us rest, that our hearts would not be anxious. Instead, we would pursue righteousness because we love you and that we would learn to trust you in peace. Lord, I pray that today as we go our way, that you would strengthen our hearts to love you, that you would help our hearts to be soft towards your conviction, 
and that you would grant our hearts gratitude and praise for the sweetness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.